0: this is the brew world order podcast welcome to the brew world order podcast the podcast where we talk to brewery owners and ask questions about owning a brewery so that future brewery owners can learn a thing or two my name is mike Curtin, and if you haven't subscribed yet well this is the perfect time you can pause it go and subscribe and come back to it ain't technology grand This is episode number 77. In this episode, I sit down with Jason Zimbrunin of Ratio Beer Works in Denver, Colorado. Jason tells us the biggest change in the industry in the last five years for him, how he would have redone a lot of things done to the building when he opened his brewery, and as he put it, do it your own way from the beginning, and how he traveled the world in a punk band in his early days, and seeing all the different types of beers really helped to push him into homebrewing, which obviously led him into owning a brewery. I'd like to think me and Jason aren't too different. I used to DJ once upon a time ago, and when I did, I would drink some beer. I don't know if the two have a correlation, me starting the podcast and drinking beer while DJing, but hey, one's audio, I used to play audio, we talk about beer, I used to drink beer. I'm just going to put two and two together and say that was the reason, even though I know it wasn't. The real reason, because I love talking about beer, baby. You want to tell me about your brewing process, how you opened your brewery? I'm the guy that's going to listen. And I hope that you listen to this episode because I put my heart and soul into this, baby. So listen up. Episode 77, featuring Jason Zumbrunnen of Ratio Beer Works. I hope you enjoy it. Hey guys, I'm Mike Curtin. This is the Brew Old Order Podcast. And today I'm with Jason Zumbrunnen. Sorry. Uh of Ratio Beer Works in Denver, Denver, Colorado. How are you doing, brother? How's everything?
1: I'm doing great. Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for being on. Uh can you just give me a, a little breakdown about you, uh where you grew up, how you kind of just got into the beer industry and wound up opening your own brewery. Yeah, you got it. So
1: just the quick version of it, grew up in Colorado. Um went to school at CU Boulder, went into chemical engineering, which is actually somewhat typical of people going into brewing. Didn't think of it much at the time, but I was in school in the 90s there. So we actually had some craft beer in Boulder and didn't realize it wasn't everywhere. We had Boulder Beer, Walnut Brewery, some of these great, great, you know, first craft brewers in the U.S. Right. So really loved it there. And then um, kind of went and didn't want to do engineering and we went and did a lot of other stuff. Started. I was playing in a punk rock band in college to do something outside of engineering, and right. that actually took off. Even though I got a job, kind of in engineering out of school, um, pretty quickly, we all quit our jobs and went and toured the world doing punk rock for a while. Awesome!
0: Awesome!
1: And so, while that was a phenomenal way to see the world, it also was kicked up my beer interest even more. So, of course, um, I had started homebrewing stuff. back in college and all that too, making terrible beers. But traveling the world, getting to go to Europe, Japan, all over, and then the US, seeing, oh, wow, there's other beers and there's places there aren't to these other beers, too. Um, And then settled in California, got into film industry a little bit in post production in studios. And only thing I say that is I all of a sudden had a lot more time and I had a better paying job than being in a band. (laughs) So I was able to, I started building out like legit homebrew and getting really involved with it. And starting to think of wanting to go into the beer industry. So somewhere at the end of like 2008, 2009, was thinking of moving with my family back to Denver from California and getting into the brewing industry and hoping to own or start a brewery and realizing it was already getting competitive. Little did I know it would get so competitive. But part of that was I wanted to go back to brewing school. So I went to brewing school at Siebel in Chicago, and then I went over to Domen's Academy in Munich, before moving to Denver, starting to brew bottom up, got a base level job at Wincoop, one of the original kind of brew pubs in the country, and worked my way up and started working on business plans the whole time. Reconnected with uh, some friends from college and Scott Kaplan, my other partner, who was in business, and uh, we reconnected over a love of beer and this idea of maybe starting a brewery. So. Took another five, six years a while of raising money and getting the business plan and everything together. And 2015, we opened February, Valentine's Day 2015, we opened Ratio Beer Works right in the heart of Denver. And so, and then as of this year, just opened our second location too. Very so that's cool. the quick version.
0: Gotcha, <laughs> perfect, perfect. Um, and you talk about uh, raising capital to open yes. your business. Uh, how did you go about doing that? and any so any issues yeah, you ran into along the way
1: well of course first you know when you first start your budget you think smaller and it keeps growing so especially when looking at build out it's funny how much some of those rough rules of thumb actually work where they go well it'll cost about the same amount whatever your equipment costs it'll cost that much to put in you're like no way no how right. and you struggle against it till you find out oh yeah that's these are all good rules of thumb so frankly, usually those contractors have a pretty good idea even beforehand. So I would definitely trust those because that's wasted time for sure. Right. But, um, yeah, we, we raised it all privately. Um, we, we didn't want to start with a lot of debt, so we wanted to raise, um, angel investors as shares in the company. So we did that first starting truly with family and friends and then kind of friends of friends. Um, that came out and actually, frankly, that's where a few of our bigger investors came is that secondary sets of friends of like I had a brother-in-law that works in tech and he shared with someone that helped found one of their companies and he kind of uh, invested in a lot of small companies and has actually become one of our advisors. So that was definitely most intimidating for me. That wasn't my background. It was my partner's a little bit. He was more in business, but frankly, I was surprised some of it. I didn't mind. Is the thing I thought I would do the worst at, and I didn't mind it because at the end of the day, people ask a lot about raising money. At the end of the day, it's a lot about telling your story, and knowing having a good background in it, and basically knowing the details. Interestingly, they cared less about this idea of you know your five-year, ten-year. Of course, people want to see that, but they're also realistic. They know you're launching a company, so the idea that they're going to get into detailed nuances of your seven-year plan, it it didn't happen at all. Even with well-experienced investors, they're looking for foundation and if we knew what we're talking about and if we had thought about a lot of the bases. And frankly, being already in the brewing industry for five-plus years, plus writing the business plan, it was really easy to just genuinely tell the story of what we wanted to do. So ended up having better success than I thought. That said, it still took longer than we had hoped.
0: (laughs) And you talk about writing a business plan uh, for all those years. Um, Was there a moment that kind of kickstarted the aha moment for you where it was just like, all right, we're making this happen?
1: I think when we actually put it out to start raising money, that's where it was like, "Okay, this is serious. Because frankly, I mean, maybe in a good way, we worked on versions of that business plan for a long time. And in a weird way, it becomes almost esoteric. It's this piece of thing you're working on. But of actually getting to that next step where we're like, we think this is dialed. We're going to share this with some people. I think that was the real moment where it was truly like, here's someone we know or a friend of a friend actually going, I'm trusting you with some money. Don't screw it up. (laughs) By the way, I don't know if we can swear on this. I was going to say, don't F it up. Yeah,
0: that's fine. We can swear on here. It's quite all right. (laughs) Uh, and from that moment when, you know, you came up, uh, with the idea to the moment you actually opened your doors, um, in 2015, what do you think was the hardest part through that journey for you?
1: Well, it's a series of stages. And by the way, being back as a little bit of an engineer brain of liking to play the chess piece out and plan ahead a lot. Um, Some of the most difficult was then taking those actually achievable steps along the way. But frankly, it's been the thing that's kept us going because projects can get so big so fast. And this was bigger than anything either of us had done and with our family. So after a while, you can kind of lay it out so far. But then you go, okay, well, what's my next step? And I'm going to take that. I've looked as far as I can and, you know, made the best choices. So it came in series of actually committing to go to brew school. I think's what kicked it off. So in a good way, people ask all the time, is it valuable to go to brew school? Is it required? Right. In reality, <clears throat> kind of the joke I made when I started at Wincoop, and remember this is 2010, so it was still low brewing wages. It was like basically almost minimum wage to start brewing then. And I knew it was going to be low pay, but and I, I got it and it was like kind of assistant brewer helping out. And it was just like, Bottom of the barrel, basically minimum wage pay, and I was like, "Oh no, I didn't know it was going to be this little." And it kind of was like, you know, I did just finish this full brewing program. I don't know if this matters. Seeble all this, right. and they go, "Okay, let's go back to management," and they they gave me a one dollar raise. <laughs> so to my How wife, nice. I was like, "Well, we know what brewing school was worth. It was worth a yeah. dollar, which is like two grand a year, and brewing school probably costs like twenty grand all in, you know, for." Yeah living expenses and everything. So I was like, you know, it's going to take 10 years to pay off brewing school at this rate. But so, yeah, I suppose directly it gave me $1 an hour, but frankly there's no way I would have been hired in the first place at that job. And also it was the ultimate motivator. I kind of had a, a little bit of a golden handcuffs job before that film job just paid quite well out in Los Angeles but it wasn't a growth job, but it was one where it was tough to, to walk away from making fairly easy, good money. Right. And so there's nothing better than actually committing to flying across the country and then across the pond to go to brewing school. And at the time, I had, we had a three-year-old son who's now 15. That was a lot of motivation. My wife's like, well, you better go for it. Yeah, right. right. If we're going to do all this. And frankly, that was the stress. But I'll tell you, it was the ultimate motivator. Even working low end job, I I just called that my paid internship. And it kept that motivation. That was probably the biggest thing that drove me was taking the step where I at least had to see it through. Because if I had kept the job that paid me on the side pretty well, I think it would have taken either never happened or at least another five years because it would have been easy to be like, ah, uh, it's a late night again. I don't want to work on yeah, the business right. plan. For sure. You know, I'll do it next week. I got a lot of work still. So sometimes making that commitment um, while scary was what was the motivation. Yeah, that, it's good motivation. really helped to sure. kick it off.
0: Yeah, I know. When I first heard uh, What Brewers Made, I think I was kind of like blown away. I was like, wait, <laughs> yeah. what? Like that's.
1: It's getting that's better like, for sure.
0: That's the blood, sweat, and tears of your brewery and everything. That's That's pretty wild to me, but. Uh, I mean,
1: well, and especially back then, yeah. you know, Wincoop was is a true brew pub. So you know, the the old GMs there at the time, and there's great people that found it, Hickenlooper and, and all this, but it really felt like still in their mind, it was an extension of the kitchen. Right. So we really brewers were paid like starting line cooks, essentially gotcha, at the time, yeah. even though there was this extra training and it was the lifeblood. I'm not sure people were going to Wincoop if there wasn't a brewery there. So it was funny of trying to recommit the value of beer to a company that helped drive that value to Colorado. But even still internally, you had to convince them why beer was important and why they should support brewers and, you know, increased pay with you know, once they show their value right. for sure.
0: Yeah. Um, so you worked in, you said breweries before this, before opening your own place. Um, When you finally opened your own place, what's something that you never thought you were going to have to deal with that you had to deal with?
1: Well, number one for sure is um, even as much as the places I worked where you did a lot of work, at the end of the day, there usually was always someone above you that on a bigger picture issue come up, you could pass off. Right. And while inherently you knew that, that we are starting our own company, very real is you need some massive thing to go wrong, like boiler go down or get a call in the middle of the night that water's flowing out your front door mm-hmm. of truly being like looking around and going like, well, I guess I'm, I'm the last person. I guess I have to deal is, with this. Oh, fingers to point to. <laughs> yeah, and going, and I don't know how to deal with it maybe, right? right? of we, we got a call, you know middle of the night of before we had opened somebody was walking by found we didn't even have a phone number yet but found our website because we had a sign in the window and there was water flowing out our front door there you go. <laughs> which you know we were working on some plumbing and a pipe and bust and was just that's also where we found out we're glad we had concrete floors in our tap room because it cleaned the crap out of them. It was <laughs> Awesome. And we also found the good news is our floor sloped to our front door so But it was like, well, I don't know. I'm going to go over and see what happens. And you start realizing, well, you're the only one that actually cares and understandably so.
0: Right. For sure. Um, I don't know if you feel like that was one of the biggest, uh, things that adjustments you felt you've had to make, or is there a bigger one than that?
1: That's probably the biggest one for sure. Um, the amount of extra work that I was fine with that and doing other projects and even being in bands or things that idea of like, well, you got to put, put in the effort. And in fact, you probably have to do it even if you're working at night and, you know, weekends and all that, that felt pretty natural of like what you expect. But that element of like, once you flip the lights on and open where it's like, you have to make the decision, even, even things like, you know, You look to other trades, we were putting in our uh, electric plugs and things at the time. So besides scoping out the brew house and all this, there's ones in the front and we had contractors too. And I figured they're like, well, where do you want your plugs? And I was like, well, isn't that why we hired you guys? I was like, where would you put them? And all of a sudden, some of these, they'd be like, well, I'm not saying anything. You have to tell me. (laughs) So all of a sudden I, I was like, okay, I mean, they would do it to code, but... I was like, wow, I have to now think about where do I want electricity, these lighting. Because yeah. sometimes when you open a brewery, you think, well, how many tanks? What do I want to brew? And generally, you know, what do I want to do? Like, how do I want to lay out a tap room? But realizing even on these tiny details that you thought someone else would be like, well, here, I'll tell you what. A right. lot of times people are like, nope, you have to tell me. And you're like, okay, I guess I'm going to learn something about electricity. Right. right?
0: <laughs> a lot on the mind. Um yeah and owning a business of of any sort including a brewery um there's a lot to deal with uh how did you go about dealing with balancing family and work
1: yeah it was hard i would say it wasn't it's not in balance and in fact that's probably a reality of someone really starting it out that doesn't mean unhealthy unbalance, but in fact if you're married or have other commitments there is this element of an understanding before you go into it is it's going to be an imbalance. Right. So what you want to make sure is that, is it a sustainable imbalance or at least for sections of time? Right. I think that's probably the key because you, you know, you go through waves of it. It's not like you keep your motivation up. Um, you get overwhelmed and need to take breaks and just say like, I'm going to have to put this off, put this down for two or three days. Um, it's, you know, it's getting overwhelming or breaking it into pieces. But yeah, we had a lot of good talks with part, you know, friends, partners, my wife about, well, what does this mean and what can you commit? But then on the reverse side, once you start getting it going, just as important, you, I almost had to actively start carving out more balanced time right. because basically, you don't I don't ever have to go home. But then I also want to still have a regular life and be married and yeah, have my for sure. kid talk to me. Yeah, <laughs> I ask
0: I ask the question all the time: How important is a mental break from everything? And you kind of just uh, just explained it right there and, and then. And I mean, I'm sure it becomes uh, yeah.
1: And and the key one is you you hear people; it's an easy answer mm-hmm. to say, "Oh, you need to find work life balance." But frankly, you have to realize sometimes it's going to be out of balance, and that's okay as long as. It's talked about and, and thoughtful in how you do it. But I don't know a way that you can be in balance inherently through the whole process. There's just no way.
0: Right. There's going to be the ups and downs so, of the whole, the whole thing.
1: Well, and uh, yeah, you're going to all of a sudden for a while be putting in 14 hours and even when you're home thinking and talking about it. But every once in a while, my wife helps remind me that I, d- I don't need to talk about it all the time when I'm at home too.
0: <laughs> gotcha. Huh. It's kind of uh, it's, gotten it's kind, better of, a, too, it's kind know, of a passion just, you know
1: <laughs> yep well, I'm seven years in it's it does get a little easier to find some of those balance points too.
0: Gotcha And uh so I'm sure there's plenty things that have happened uh, through since you've been open uh, that you kind of look back and you're like, man, I wish we could have redone this. What's one thing you wish you could have redone from the get-go? so that that problem or issue didn't occur?
1: I would say since a little more on the business side of this too, of this discussion, (laughs) we would have, we should have gone down to the studs on the place we took over back to budget. And of course, budget was real. So I don't go back and say, Oh, well we should have started with 2 million instead of one. Like those are easy things to say. It's like, okay, no, that's what we could do. So we made, we did well, but we've, we did try to keep a few of the things, the people before us that had some bathrooms and it was kind of a tap room before, but the the bathrooms are at our original location are just been a nightmare. And we've at least paid over what it would have cost to just have rebuilt them from scratch to begin with. And so now it's like, we'd have to shut down for two weeks or something to actually rebuild them. So we just dump money into like, polishing the turd if you will.
0: Gotcha. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so yeah. Um, frankly we took over a spot that was an old brewery at the, at our new location and very much we took it to heart. We got you know, it's our second time through. Um, so there was a few things we could have definitely kept and there's, you know, a couple things in the front, but we actually purposefully took more time and said, we're going to take out the things we know aren't good instead of trying to make everything kind of work from before. So, right. um, definitely as much as your budget will allow do it your way from the beginning instead of kind of taking maybe what's there or what the building is i'd recommend that too when looking at buildings i'm so glad we we looked at enough buildings and at the time a lot of the um marijuana grow houses were starting in colorado let's call 2012 and beyond so also we couldn't find buildings so we are starting to be like looking at the craziest buildings like, well, we could probably fit this or let's put the fermenters on the roof. Nothing that bad, but right. basically like that. And I'm so glad we weren't like trying to squeeze a brewery in where a brewery wouldn't fit. Gotcha. So it's worth it's worth waiting on a finding your key items and go, well, those are non-negotiable.
0: I'm sure being so. a tap house prior to was a big uh, decision in why you chose the location you chose.
1: Oh, for sure. Especially on location. Right. Um, you know, if we, if we had gone straight into production, we could have moved to, you know, industrial, well, kind of was industrial when we moved in, but truly a little bit out of town and would have had no problem, much cheaper lease. And frankly, we could have had even better brewing space, but that is where a compromise Colorado's really big on taproom breweries. Right. Yeah. Because our laws are pretty good about being able to sell straight to, you know, retail over your own bar. So it's it's worth doing for sure, especially because it's so hard to get into wholesale brewing from from starting from scratch. Gotcha. Really difficult. Yeah. Just the profit margin so low on wholesale.
0: So you were open for about five years uh, before COVID hit you.
1: Yeah, um, we. It was five years, almost on the yeah. well within the month right. because we had a awesome five-year anniversary party that's, perfect. <laughs> that's how i always remember
0: and then i was, it was like what like, was the
1: last good thing that happened before COVID? yeah and then it was it like pump the brakes
0: uh yep. how did you guys go about pivoting making that work for you and uh keeping your business going
1: yeah and to not i know everyone's heard enough of a lot of these stories right. but at least what's specific to us um we we were taking our time to go into packaging, go into cans at all. It was what we wanted to do. And 2020 was our year to sign a lease for to build out a production brewery. But amazingly, we had built our volume into draft only, into kegs. So when, when that hit, we had really good sales. And I mean, we were at like 300 restaurants and bars just in Denver. So we were trying to go deep and not wide. And we were draft only and we felt great like, We'll take a year, we'll get into cans, and then there's a lot of volume there. But back to maybe the idea of being diversified as much as you can, that hit us hard because while everyone else usually does a little of both and they could easily pivot into more of the package sales, we had nothing. Our sales went to zero overnight, um, especially when they first shut down the tap rooms. But everything else was bars and restaurants and they all closed here. So we especially were in a predicament as a brewery, um, where we were actually like, I don't even know what we would do go to zero. So, uh, within the first week of the shutdown, we bought, we had just been at a conference and wild goose, which is one of the big craft beer canning companies, um, in the country is out of Colorado. And they had just modeled some new single heads, you know, small can filler at our convention like three weeks before. And we thought, oh, that would be fun for small projects or like barrel-aged things. Right. So we had looked into it a little. And luckily we had because it was like two days after we actually had to shut down. We were calling them going, can we buy one of those canning lines? Right. They're called the Gosling. And it was cra- I mean, they went crazy. And we got basically a beta version. They had built out for <laughs> Siebel, the school. Right. And in fact, at first they were like, we're sold out. And now we think it's going to be, we already had pre-committed and we hadn't built many. And now we think it's gonna be five months till we have any. But we convinced them because Siebel was shutting down with COVID, they were able to sell us the one they had, they were gonna debut for that school. So perfect. And it was a beta version for sure. I think it was unit number two. And it was, you know, single hand feed the cans, but it, it helped. We, it got us into cans. Like you said, we were very disciplined and planned. We wanted a year of like market research on can labels and all that. And then we had a full time graphic designer, and we were basically like, Anna, okay, remember that thing where we had a year to design one label? Now we need a label in three, two <laughs> weeks. And then we need another label every week for another six yeah. weeks. Because we basically released like six of our beers in a row. Um, and we did it though. And uh, we did a decent amount of cans that year, and once sales could go and got us into grocery stores. So, in a weird way, too, you know, any silver linings to COVID we were maybe dragging our feet a little of how difficult and weird the world of going into packaging would be. And this just forced our hand into it. And now we're trying to stay in it. There's, there's still a lot that we know is as difficult and it's, it's new challenges. If anyone that runs a packaging line knows, but frankly, some of the others was like, we were overthinking it. And so in some ways it was good. We were forced into it because then you, you don't have time to get nervous or think about it. You just are like, all right, I guess we're talking to Whole Foods this week and don't even have time to get nervous about it because we're just trying to keep the company afloat. Exactly. So to... we had some good successes like Whole Foods bringing us on. Yeah, so.
0: you got to throw them right into the lines then and how to yeah. make moves. Hey, man.
1: Yep. So, it's, it's so yeah, we we went, you know, the one unfortunate thing too, I mean, there's different ways to handle it, but we we cut down and did the the furloughs for a big part of our staff, especially front of house when we weren't running it. But we kept our main manager. So we went down to only about five people. and We were probably at 40, you wow. include bartenders. But we did keep our top people. And so it was like one brewer, our taproom manager, our head of sales. And everyone went back to doing a little of everything. It was almost like starting a business again. Right. I think it worked out as hard as that was and you know having to do big layoffs. I do think we were able to start pulling people back in sooner because of it. Um, that we kind of went down to a core group. We had some other folks here that either waited longer and then maybe went just completely out of business. Um, or we saw some reverse where they were trying to keep less expensive employees and they laid off their managers. But then really, as you could imagine, struggled with anyone knowing how to run anything, yeah, right. too. So <laughs> yeah. nobody had a roadmap, but that was our best guess. And we yeah, relied on
0: clueless. You just got to kind of figure Um, it out. Friends
1: or advisors, sometimes having cool heads, because I'll tell you, I'd pretend we were just all cool-headed through it, but we weren't, right? Of course, We were freaking out at home and going, (laughs) what's going on, just like everyone else? And going, I don't know what to do, but just like I told you, when you start the company and people go, they all just look to you then. Right. It was the same way. This was like, well, what do we do? There's a pandemic. And you're like, in my head, I was like, I don't know what to do. I've
0: never dealt (laughs) with a pandemic before. But I
1: guess let's... Yeah, let's start with these things. Let's try right. these and let's go.
0: Right. So I'm I'm sure you've come across <laughs> plenty of people in the industry, all who had to kind of deal with the same thing you did. But uh, is there anybody that has basically left a big in inspiration on you? Uh, who's inspired you the most in the beer industry? Out of all the people that you oh, yeah. that you've met?
1: That's a great question because. <laughs> we look at for different inspirations and frankly talking to other people, it's always good to look outside the industry as well um, because it doesn't have to be from one source. So we had a few, what's great is um, from a culture perspective on how to build a company around brewing. um, It couldn't be better than new Belgium for us, right? In our backyard where I grew up and Kim Jordan in particular at the time, the, the idea, of how that company built and the company culture and employees was just phenomenal. Just especially for, I mean, brewing was already a really nice social industry, but that company like no other. And of course it's, it expanded and grew and it's a different company and now it's sold. So I'm sure a lot of that's changed quite a bit, but um, couldn't be better than the idea of building a strong culture, the new Belgium. And then from brewing, From that idea that we are trying to stay close and not expand quickly, um, we always looked at New Glarus out of Wisconsin. Um, I mean, they're just this amazing story of, you know, one of the biggest breweries in the country, and they don't sell any beer outside of the state of Wisconsin. Um, I had a good mentor. I went to AC Golden, one of my jobs. I got a technical job inside of Coors before this to get technical brewing. And one of the mentors there that helped run AC Golden just really inspired in me the idea of, if you can grow in your own territory, that's the real growth. And he basically said, anyone can grow by opening a new territory, but it's hard to sustain that. So he's like, when you look, your real value is, can you grow within a territory? That That's where you should look at the health of your company or not. So we've taken that to heart to say, can we know Denver and can we grow here before we start expanding and opening up like the next town over so... And then I'd also say just from brewing, Mitch Steele, who was at Stone Brewing from a technical side, um, I listen, if he ever gives advice or writes papers and things, um, just seems like a sharp guy in the industry. Um, John Mallet from Bells is another right. guy that usually what he says. But yeah, New Glarus, Kim Jordan at New Belgium, all those have been pretty inspiring for yeah. sure.
0: John Mallett was uh, actually just mentioned recently. Um, I just interviewed um, the owners of Burns, Wayne Burns and, oh, uh, yeah. and Laura. And yeah, they were, I, they actually mentioned him, spoke very highly of him.
1: He's a great, if you ever get it. I mean, he's just inspiring anyways right. and just so committed into the industry. So, and there's a lot of those people there, they're long enough of, they get over some of the hype things um, there's always things to learn from those breweries, too, that are doing weird, wild, new, wacky things because then new techniques come out of that. But right. after someone's done it for a while and sustained success and they're interesting to listen to. <laughs> yeah,
0: right. It's always a good thing.
1: By the way, if you've ever heard Randy Mosier, who, you know, has written some very famous books and blanking on the it's the one that if you're going to study for Cicerone, it's kind of the base book. But he's awesome to hear talk to. But that's more on. The like tasting and experience and history of beer for sure.
0: Gotcha. And good to know. Good to know for sure. Yeah. Uh, is, is there a moment that sticks out for you um, in your head that when, when, possibly when you were first opening, I guess, um, that is kind of a moment of success, like things were going in the right direction?
1: Yeah. You know, it's funny you mentioned that too. One other kind of weird phenomenon is you're so busy when you open. Even kind of our first, as you open and do kind of parties, it's hard to actually kind of celebrate. There's so much going on, right? It's like people say at their own wedding, it's hard to yeah, enjoy right. your own wedding. Yeah, right. So, um, usually at our anniversaries is my moment, especially to take a step back and if we <clears> get some bands or fly in that where it kind of hits me of this is pretty cool and come together. One other other interesting part that's a very small part of joy, and I know causes heartache for other people but the social media side of it like Instagram for me was surprising of knowing obviously we're doing it but I do find a lot of joy in because we're a taproom brewery is when we look through and we get tagged and people are there one wonderful thing about beer is it's such an enjoyment of people coming together especially in like digital world of people getting together in real life and you know using beer as this connector which is one of our goals when we started it You know, we are both musicians, and this idea that beer connects you when you go to these events or shows, and so I love it. So seeing people's um, posts of them just having a great time at our brewery, it's really minor. It's not huge moments, but that's where you go. Wow, this is really cool. Right. And then also a bunch when people uh, have their first dates and then get married, and they tell us they had their first date at the. That's pretty awesome. I like that too. That's pretty cool.
0: cool. Kind of being a part part of people's storyline. Definitely yeah. cool. I know for for sure. I just posted something the other day because I, I went into the brewery very close to my house, uh, Finback. I don't know if you're familiar with it it's in Queens. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, they have a beer uh, called Ultimate Beats, one of my favorite, and they just put it back up, put it back out. They do it with uh, Jay Wakefield collaboration with Jay Wakefield down yeah. in Miami and uh, Florida. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's that's one of my favorites. And every time it comes out, I'm like posting online, letting everybody know because. Everybody knows that's that's my favorite beer. I always talk about it. So, yeah. Um,
1: I love it. Yeah. I, I actually enjoy some of the smaller moments even better. So, we've just recently had some good success in um, GABF and World Beer Cup now like three years in a row and we just won. Awesome. And while I love it, frankly, those don't bring me the same kind of big joy. I like it in the sense of it's good affirmation and it's really important for our sales and our brew team. Right they're the ones that ultimately did it but um it is funny Of that's not where i usually look to find you know that's that's a nice i feel happy for our team with those right but uh, for me it's it's more the day-to-day of people enjoying your beer is really exciting to me
0: very cool uh, is i know a lot of people talk about the brewing industry as a, almost like a brotherhood. Um, You know, they can talk to the guy down the street, you know, any advice you got from me, because they've been in the game longer or whatnot. Um, But is there a way that you try to stay ahead of your competition?
1: That's a good question. In Colorado, I mean, it's almost everywhere, but Colorado is amazingly collaborative. And actually... A little bit of shout out to the one big bad brewer that ever, you know, but Coors, frankly, is different and when it was at least family owned before all the things, they're amazingly good to the craft brewers around here. The sharing of knowledge, people within it. Not necessarily at the top. I get it's competitive out when you're looking for tap handles but from the brewing side, I think that's one of the reasons, frankly, the Colorado beer culture um, was as good as it was in craft. It started there. If you look at when Charlie Papazian started, you know, he wrote Joy Home Brewing and started the Brewers Association. All those things were in the late 70s. The old pictures were with people from Coors and Boulder Beer and like Charlie, and like <laughs> that's all it was. Right. I mean, it's truly the ultimate starting of, well, here's eight people that are into this. Right. And then it's cool and it grew from there. But yeah, it is, but it is correct. As much as it's fun and on the brewing side, especially as it gets more competitive, at the end of the day, Usually the sales folks will tell you, hey, while we love these other breweries, at the end of the day, you are competing, especially outside, right? right. You know, if a place has 12 tap handles, there's only 12 people that get on. Right. And we've got 300 breweries in Colorado, you know, or 400 now. Stuff. Um, so, you know, you have to admit we're, we're competing too. So I, I would say the nice thing too is we come from that DIY of when we used to be playing punk rock shows and my partner – of booking your own shows and all that. The spirit of Arbury, we really have been kind of DIY. Whenever we partner or ask favors or you know, vice versa, working with other groups, we do always come to that, at the end of the day, we wanna make sure we're not too reliant on anyone else. We don't, if we're asking more than a single help for favor, you know, it's one thing to ask for hops that you're out of. But if you're starting, if we realize, boy, this is like the third time we've reached out to these folks, that's a good indicator of we need to learn this ourselves or bring it in house. We're, we're completely self distributed too, still, which you can in Colorado to a certain size. And part of that is the model, but it's also of with a compet, we realize when we're competitive and we're small, one other touch point is if we, if it's our drivers delivering beer and it's our people cleaning your beer lines, that's one more touch point. We're small. Nobody knows. Well, like when we open, nobody knows about us. Right. And why should they care? So every moment we can be part of who we are um, starts building that name and then partnering, you know, with like minded businesses. When we opened, we only picked like 10 restaurants that we wanted to focus on. And it was specifically the ones that we thought, well, this will help people associate our brand as well of where we should be. And that's really helped. So you definitely have to stand enough on your own. The camaraderie can be there over beers and or sharing ideas or helping with hops. But when it's running your own brand or what you're doing as a company, you, the DIY mentality is really good of letting you, that's how you can kind of stand out from the group too.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Um, so you've been in the industry for a while now, but in the last five years, what would you say is the biggest change in the industry?
1: <laughs> it was COVID. <laughs> well, oh my God. Besides COVID. I mean, uh, the- okay, oh, so besides the most massive thing to yes. happen, yeah. yeah, so what's second place, way second place for us or do you or the industry
0: for the industry?
1: Uh, well, I'll speak only I mean, I'll talk about Colorado for sure. Uh, a gradual change that happened out here, which I think is overall happening, but um, for a little while when I was moving back, Colorado, you know, I was in l a when Oscar blues released Dale's pale ale and it came in a can Mm. and everyone lost, lost their minds. It was really cool. It kind of put Colorado on the map again. And you know, the idea that beer craft beer was in a can. So if you go back to that, like late two thousands, that's the massive shift, right? That we craft beer went into cans. Um, And then craft canning came about with like wild goose with upslope here of really on a smaller scale, but you know, you're not on a, a, million-dollar system, but you're also not on a hand-fed original cast that was made for soda, which is what it started on. So that was probably the biggest early driver I saw, starting to be, like, good beer in cans. Right. and then, But then in Colorado, there's been a big shift of everything was big for a while. That was, like, Colorado's thing. So I brought up Dale's Pale Ale because by any standard, that's an IPA, right? It's, like, 6.5% or something. It's, like, 50 BU's. I mean, you're like, that's an IPA every day down the middle. And yet they called it a pale ale, which was intentional hearing about the kind of origin stories of it. But that was pretty common in Colorado. It was a little like, let's do every style but bolder, you know, bigger and bolder, more alcoholic, big. Right. So, you know, you look besides maybe New Belgium was a little more traditional, but your Avery's uh, Great Divides, um, all those. Oscar blues were just making massive beers. Everything was big. So us, by the time we started the shift back to like regular strength session beers and especially in Colorado. And maybe it's because we have such, you know, not only was Coors here, we have a Budweiser plant, but the, the shift back to the idea that, you know, a clean lager or, you know, simple beers are worthy of doing as a craft brewing company and that they sell it's been a big shift. The good news is I don't think that's a shift that will ever go away. Frankly, you know, you know, flagship-style beers have sold well for 500 years around the world, so that's not going away. For sure. Maybe black IPAs go in and out of fashion, but, you know, a good drink and beer should, it might go in some waves, but um, it should be accepted everywhere. And so now, man, the good loggers and simple beers in Colorado is awesome.
0: Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny you, you say that because I was always, you know, big into the, you know, imperial IPAs, you know, double IPAs, yep. all that heavy and, you know, imperial stouts and everything like that. And then, uh, I went out to San Diego and I, I spoke to Clayton at Epic, Epic in, in uh, San Diego. And I think it was San Diego, if I'm not mistaken, but maybe I'm wrong, but wherever they are, um, and he let me try like a Japanese style Pilsner and it like blew me away. Blew me away. I'm like, oh man, maybe <laughs> yeah. I need to start trying some more Pilsners <laughs> and Logner lagers, and, and and go away from the heavy beers for a while and, and you know, start opening up. My oh yeah. Well
1: the nice thing is it's a it's it's good to have balance. Right. Where, I mean, I love I loved those as well. And rem- rem- when I was in L.A., I was in southern L.A., so Stone was like an hour away for us. And, you know, they were making the, you know, the bitter wars were on in craft beer, right. especially the West Coast. It was like, we're going to make big, dry, bitter IPAs. Um, so it was either... Stone was making either bitter IPAs or strong bitter IPAs. That <laughs> was like what Stone was known for. But it was great at the time. Right. But it is nice to have some balance and be able to switch between them too. For sure. I, I was in Portland a couple of years ago, and you know they're so big on mm-hmm. IPAs before the haze craze. But it was funny of it was like all IPAs. That's like all they had. Maybe pale ales and IPAs. You'd, you'd go to a brewery, and they'd be like, oh, yeah, we have 10 beers on tap. Awesome.
0: All IPA. And
1: nine of them are some kind of regular <laughs> yeah. IPA. Yeah. And you're like, not even a stout? Something no. something else. Yeah. Me and my yep. friend
0: talk about that all the time. Where there's a couple of breweries we've been to, and it's like, I, don't get me wrong. I love IPAs, but it's like, I want to go to a brewery and like see a little variety. That's why you go to a brewery. Yeah. And then, uh Yeah. If you have, like, ten taps and, like, six, them IPAs, like, come on, man. But uh, I, Oh, I know. <laughs> speaking, speaking of uh, different types of beer, uh, what was your gateway beer into the craft beer world? What was that one that kind of opened your mind to, oh, wow, I beer could two. taste like this?
1: Yeah, I had two. One was in college, and it was called Buff- Buffalo Gold, and it was made by Buffalo. Walnut Brewery. Um, and it was, like, a golden ale. So it was just a little maltier and tasty. They still kind of make a version. And then Boulder Beer kind of took it over. I don't even know who actually still owns the brand anymore. But it's kind of dead. But I remember that of... That was definitely the jump from Keystone Light, which was big in CU Boulder at the time. Because it was cheap. And uh, to actually go, hey, we're going to spend a little bit more and here's really good. The second one for me was IPAs. And... I had kind of had a few tastes or whatever, but I realized I hadn't really had one legitimately or at least the full one till I was out in, in LA and I was at father's office in Santa Monica and I ordered a Racer 5, Racer 5 by Bear, yeah, Republic Bear Republic of North sure. California. I remember the bartender, this is funny now like you would ever do this, but he warned me, you do know this is a bitter beer, right? Because yeah. it was an IPA. I was like, yeah, 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 of course, you know. No, no problem. And I remember I took that first sip and was like, oh my God, it's so bitter (laughs) bitter compared to, I mean, and now I bet that was barely bitter Mm. at all. Right. But the first sip, I was like, oh my God, what'd I do? I, you know, this beer's, I'm not going to be able to drink it. This bartender's going to laugh, but you know, two sips in your, you know,
0: palate acclimatizes.
1: And then I was like, man, this beer's delicious. You know, my first sip was like, "Oh my god, what I do," and then I was like, "Wow, this is delicious." I really liked it, and that's probably the big swing where I was like, "Whoa, this is wild." Because maybe Sam Adams was maybe the you know the stronger beer I'd had before that, like legitimately a few times. I, once again, I'd had—I'm sure I've had some, but that was the first truly sat down and ordered this ipa yeah. <laughs> a west coast ipa mm-hmm. In particular, i'll tell you what
0: you did you you opened up a whole can of worms because look at you now
1: <laughs> yeah i know totally. so
0: uh speaking of your brewery um what's next for your brewery what does the future look like for ratio
1: so yeah you know massive changes you know of pivoting through COVID and we were going to be open a production facility. And in fact, it wasn't our goal to necessarily open another tap room. We'd gotten a lot of offers to do it, but we're pretty much an urban brewery that likes to connect either art or music and things in a city. Um, So a lot of, we were getting a lot of offers and things from suburbs, but we haven't built our brand strong enough. We didn't want to just, you know, franchise or something. So, and then, so we were looking for that, but with COVID, everything changed and then certain opportunities started coming up frankly we started getting more calls back we had been looking at buildings for two years before right. covid and you know prices were going up through the roof and everyone's like well we'll call you back and then all of a sudden we were actually getting calls right. back and that was wild and we we're like no we're trying to just not die over yeah. here um you know figuratively and literally yeah. too but um But as we started coming out, we're like, okay, now we're canning and this is terrible because we're doing it in our original brewery that is not designed to also have a little canning line in there. So we were jammed on top of each other. And so it was like, well, what can we do? Can we contract can a little bit? So we even had started doing some contract canning of a brand just to take some volume off. But back to our DIY, we want to bring that back long-term. So, and then an opportunity came of a brewery that had gone out before COVID And then for like the two years of COVID, they had gone through a bankruptcy and the building owners bought, slowly bought all the equipment out of that. So basically we heard again that that was available again as a spot and we knew they had built out an area for canning at least. And so that worked and we were able to, we ended up having to buy a new canning line from Cody, but some of the infrastructure, other parts were there already. So frankly, we think this is a good hybrid. It's a full second tap room. It's still in an urban part of the city in a new up-and-coming neighborhood called Overland. So we think this buys us a couple years on the canning side to get our feet actually learned now. Before, we were just scrambling for two years, learning on the fly. Now we're trying to be disciplined again, bring in people that maybe have some more expertise in this world. And then hopefully the tap room builds where that, that brewery can exist on its own just for brewing beer for the tap room and for accounts near there, but not trying to run it as a production facility. So the interesting one is, be if if we see continued success in it, I think we'll go back to our plan of some kind of production facility that we look at, um, where we actually build it out with the correct space, the pull-in cans and all that, and be able to package more and brew a little more efficiently there. So. But that being, and then I'll see us expanding in the next five years to other cities because so we're still pretty, predominantly in Denver and a little into Boulder. But we'll probably get up into Summit County of the mountains here for Collins, Colorado Springs, and our long-term goal is. I don't think now, especially COVID, resets some priorities. But I don't. We're not going to expand outside of Colorado. I don't, it's really not in the cards. No. So we're going to go as strong nuclear as we can have just continue to grow within the state. But we had we had good growth. We, we lost hard, you know, we were down 40% in 2020, um, 60%, 60% we were down geez. to 40%, but we gained it all back by 2021. Right. So people came, people came out fighting drugs, hard and all know? our teammates. Yeah. yeah and, and we got 20% of it because we were able to right. go into cans back. So, you know, we set a record last year now. So what's funny, the BA put their, their guidebook out of breweries and right. their sizes. And our size shows like a 77% growth because it was last right. year's numbers. Awesome. And it was like, well, yeah, first we honestly submitted our numbers. I looked at some of those. I was like, no way nobody was down that far. It felt like we were the <laughs> only ones that put a really uh, low I'm number sure everybody for 2020. Kept their, but their I don't know. I don't yeah. know what they're
0: doing. Nobody wants to uh, brag yeah. about being down that low, I'm sure.
1: No, I know. But of any time where it's like everyone gets yeah. it. But so, yeah, we hope it's 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 – a struggle and it's almost like starting a new business post COVID right. for sure. It's just a different world again. So the good news is sometimes it refocuses of back to the important parts. And remember at its base, like if we lose a batch of beer or something. We just had a brewer put in the lemon. We did a full puree and he put it into the wrong beer, oh, <laughs> which uh, one of funny stories of things that always happen. But okay. at the end of the day you go, it's a really really great brewer and it was a mistake. And you're like, that it's just right. beer, right? We're not, we're not doing, you're not doing heart for surgery sure. over yeah. here. And frankly, the pandemic put it into perspective of like, boy, there's much bigger problems than we have one bad batch of Hey, that's a that great way to look in. at it. For sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Um, I don't want to go through that lesson. No, yet, I'm like, sure. I'm sure you don't.
0: <laughs> don't. I'm sure you don't. And um, if somebody came to you and asked you for advice on opening their own brewery, what advice would you give them,
1: man? I suppose that's I'd have to rethink it now, post COVID, for sure. Right. <laughs> um, at the end of the day, especially depending where they're at, but um, if you, you should start with the tap. I mean, unless you have, you know, ten million dollars. You know, how do you make a million dollars start right. with ten million? But if unless you have a lot to start big, I wouldn't do it. The tap room model is the right way to do it. Um, if you can't, if your state allows it. And then at that point, it's, it's that location does matter. Um, there was a little period here in Colorado and Denver location almost didn't seem to matter. It was just so much fun every time a new brewery had opened and people thought, you know, even when we opened 2014, Oh, did Colorado and Denver, they're already saturated and overdone. But in reality, Denver didn't have that many breweries. When I moved in 2010, there were only nine breweries in Denver. Um, in the city proper yeah. there was more in boulder and fort collins and by the time we opened in 2015 denver crossed 60 breweries so in the five yeah. years like it 50 was hard breweries. when i opened.
0: just came when i just went there it was hard to hit everything you know i, oh, I wanted to i wanted to come there it was just so much so much yeah well
1: you know we're in the river north art district and we now have more than 10 breweries in our neighborhood. I think we might be the densest neighborhood in the country. Really. If you with breweries and distilleries right. and cideries. Um just in our neighborhood, we have more than 10 in our neighborhood. <sighs> We've got two distilleries, two wineries, a cidery still. So it's yeah. wild. But so in other words, you it would be easy to say, well don't open a brewery, but you might not want to open in in our neighborhood <laughs> no, right no. now. <laughs>
0: that might not be the best. But thing, then
1: yeah. again, when, when we opened, I think we were the third or the fourth. And we actually thought, oh, there's too right. many. You know, they're, you know, down the block or so. And now, you know, we have five within, like, right. block of each other. And, that, and those are okay. We're all doing well, and it helped for a while. So, But still, location really matters now. People, unless you really bring the hype you better at least have a decent spot that people can get to. And that doesn't mean it has to be walkable and in some already built-up neighborhood, but it better be where then a destination spot and the place is cool or and people can hang other out.
0: Other popular so
1: spots. So that's key because you being able to sell your own beer over your tap is what funds any expansion that you want to do. Um, and if you can get your fundamentals at your own spot, you can then expand outside. So I would say that it's like, Start as tight as you can in get your fundamentals down and then expand. So instead of trying to take over the city or the world, you might need to add a couple of years in your plan then for it and not just say you're gonna be explosive growth, but I mean you've seen it the one I'd say is you know that i bucked the trend for a minute was modern times. You're like, oh, they didn't they're just going for it and they were, they were doing it. And if they got derailed for a couple of other reasons, but boy, they also were so leveraged out there. Um, cause they, ex- I mean, that's just expanding right. big time. So it's hard. It's a tough to pull that off. It's a lot easier to make your mistakes when, when you're small and you can make bigger mistakes cause they're easier to come right. back from. And then you grow a little bit, you still make mistakes, but now you're a little more seasoned and then it's easier to uh, fix those as right. you get bigger.
0: Good lessons learned for sure. Uh, So did you happen to have a funny story for us?
1: Oh, yeah. I was thinking about what's all the funny. I was thinking about ruining beers and also realizing, too, of, you know, a good mentor of mine that I brewed under of the idea of it's only beer. And what's funny is he could get pretty, you know, uh, not a short fuse, but he was a pretty serious guy on brewing. But if something really got messed up, he'd take a really great approach of. At the end of the day, it's beer, right? Like we're not you know, as long as safety of people are there. So the amount of screwed up beers that other people have done. My only one that I screwed well, the favorite one at ratio was training our now sales manager. I suppose it was on me, is and everyone's probably had a hop fountain happen to them. But if you have a beer that's been fermenting and maybe you uh, capped it off and it carbonated a little and you haven't dry hopped yet, it's like the Mentos yes. experiment. And so I happen to be as used. There's not much you can do too. Once it starts coming up and exploding and I have, I have amazing footage that maybe I could share of maybe one of the best ones I've seen of it. Just shoe now top hitting the ceiling of our brew awesome. house and just covering our entire floor before. And we had a couple breweries there in the front drinking. Somebody has a picture of it from our tap room and you can see the fountains zooming yeah, over the
0: top. I've seen but, many of but them. But
1: I'll That's tell great. you without naming names, uh, Everyone's made those big mistakes. There's a pretty high-up person at Coors that's got the nickname Two Mash because they uh, they mashed in, put in their brew, and before they had pressed out to their mash press like a louder ton, they mashed in again their second brew on top of the first oh, one no. and overflowed it. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, everyone's, e- even all the high-up great brewers, they'll screw up a beer yeah, real happens. bad. Something that seems real yeah. obvious. They mashed in on top of a beer that was already in there. But
0: I don't know. With my home brewing experience, I think the only real big, big mistake I've made so far was uh, just not getting the gravity. So that's not that horrible. But people ask me, like, what's the ABV on this? I'm like, I I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Have have two of them and then feel it out. Let me know. (laughs) I don't know. know. So so I have a little segment called Quick Fire Five, five quick questions. All okay. Beer related, ready? Okay, yep, I'm ready. Ah, uh, somebody comes into your tap room. What's one of the beers you recommend they try?
1: I usually, I always started with our dear you, our French saison. Um, it's a really dry sessional one. It's the one we won a GABF recently for and uh, um, World Beer Cup, and it's a good transition beer, especially if someone says I don't like beer but maybe they like wine.
0: Gotcha. Uh, that's the one I usually shoot them okay Okay. Uh, favorite brewery other than your own?
1: Ah, that's a great <laughs> question. For a local right now, um, back to the sessionable one open on the edge of our neighborhood called Cohesion. Cohesion. And it's a Czech-style brewery. And it was the guy who spun off of Odd 13, one of the big kind of hazy breweries that was in the town, well-respected brewery. And I thought he was crazy doing a Czech-only brewery. I was like... That's a niche. That's going to be tough. But man, it's delicious. So they have a beer, their check 12 or something, I think it's called, is is just phenomenal.
0: Good to know. Good to know. Oh, you making my...
1: If you're going to ask me, my macro one is a Coors Banquet. Coors Banquet.
0: <laughs> I, love, I love Banquet, man. That's one of my favorites, believe it or not. <laughs> yeah. Believe it or not. Uh, I like this question. Uh, favorite name you've come up with for one of your beers?
1: Oh, uh, yeah. Um, we, have, we have a carrot elderflower saison called King of Carrot Flowers. King
0: of Carrot Flowers.
1: And loved that. Um, came up with that name. That was inspired by, there's a song with that title, although it's not directly it was inspired by it, but it's the first beer I had a name for before having the recipe done. And we did it for a, an indoor farm here in one of our food desert neighborhoods. And it was for their harvest week, a big festival. So we always tried to do some kind of fruit or a root vegetable beer. And so it was supposed to be a one-off. And so we used carrots and then we used elderflowers. Going to use rose, but it's too perfumey. And it's turned into kind of a cult favorite. It was supposed to be a one-week beer. And now it's turned into – it's probably our biggest specialty beer we did. That's
0: awesome, man. Uh, Yeah. Ooh. Barrel-aged, Imperial, or both?
1: Oh, what do yeah, I prefer? barrel-aged,
0: Imperial, or both?
1: Bo- I I prefer okay. both. So, Me too. Um, We've switched. <laughs> we do. Uh, our our main one, we'll do a barrel-aged Imperial stout every right. year. And I love that style. Me too. It's great. Me it's too. a good way to drink a yeah, stout. It's one of
0: my favorites. <laughs> uh and you have yep. one keg of beer to hold you over for a 2 week quarantine what beer are you choosing could be anybody's desert, I- desert, I- oh, desert anybody's island desert island
1: beer desert island that's always a tough question but i think i would go what's funny is is i would you would think oh i'll pick some specialty right. some west and 12 or something but i'd probably go with a like a a pilsner or something that those I just don't get sick of. That's kind of my everyday beer. So if I could have it every day, I won't get sick of it. So maybe that cohesion check 12
0: pounder. All right. Well, Jay, that's, that's all I got for you, man. That's everything.
1: Awesome. Thank
0: that's you great. very much for being on. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, yeah. you're welcome. Yeah. I'm Mike great. Curtin
0: for the Brew World Daughter podcast. Here with Jason. I'm going to, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this right this time. Zoom Brunnen, Correct.
1: All right, I'll okay. we'll take it. <laughs> Damn.
0: Okay, of Ratio Beer Works in Denver, Colorado. Thank you very much, man. Appreciate it. Hey, guys, thank you so much for listening to my interview with Jason Zimbrunnen, owner of Ratio Beer Works in Denver, Colorado. You know how it goes, whether you're passing through, you live in the area, or just visiting a friend nearby. You should definitely check them out. Give them a follow on social media while you're at it. See what those guys are up to. Every other Sunday, I'll be releasing a new episode, so subscribe, and you'll never miss one. Also, give us a follow on YouTube. You can see my expression as I talk to people. It's pretty neat stuff. And while you're at it, give us a follow on social media for updates on the podcast. I'm Mike Curtin for the Brew Old Order Podcast. You stay safe out there.